Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for having me, 
and revolutionary greetings to our guests, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we bring in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, peace, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamathanishoki, Colonel with African Awareness, and I'm all about institution building. Uh, it seems to me, when you look at the insanity that is sweeping the globe, it seems to me there has to be some kind of uh, reasonableness in which people begin to deconstruct and to adequately understand exactly the kind of changes that are taking place and who's behind these changes that are taking place. Often when we talk about these changes, they're not in the best interest of humanity, but nonetheless they, they persist. And so the question is, what are we going to do as a people? So it seems to me the institutions are indispensable in terms of being able to actually deconstruct, actually um, um, formulate uh, ideas and strategies that will move us forward. So we need institutions in order to facilitate that. And Brother Africa, I want to thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Haki. Following Brother Haki, we're bringing Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Peace, everybody. Brother Jabari, resident researcher, looking forward to another great program. It's an honor and privilege to be participating with my fellow panelists. Peace to the listening audience. And following Brother Jabari, we're bringing Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. And I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show. Uh, we thank all the panelists, and right now to our listening audience, our theme tonight is from Colombia to Brazil to Cuba to Haiti, African Indigenous People Struggles. We're going to talk about the struggles of African Indigenous people tonight as we talk about the Central, South, and the Caribbean regions. Um, to do that, we have three guests and a translator who are going to share their wealth of knowledge and information with us. Uh, and our translator is Sister Rosler, Roslyn. Rosalind, I like we like to say hello to her. Rosalind, we'd like to say a few words to our listening audience. Hello, thank you for having me on the show. I'm very excited to share my translating and interpreting skills with everybody. Thank you. She will be our translator for this special show. We have three guests. We have Sister Sanchez, Brother Ofunshi, and Sister Crystal. What we're going to do right now, starting with you, Sister Sanchez, we'd like for you to introduce yourself, the organization you represent, and tell us a little something about the organization. Welcome, Sister Sanchez. Good evening. Good evening, and thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm Jimena Sanchez, and I'm the director for the Andes at the Washington Office on Latin America. We are an independent organization that promotes human rights in the Western Hemisphere, one of our areas of focus in Colombia in particular has been the plight of the Afro-descendant people because the injustices for Afro-descendant people are particularly bad in uh, Colombia. Okay, Nick, 
Brother Ofunchi, would you introduce yourselves to our people and tell us a little something about your organization? Yeah, my name is uh, Ofunchi, Babalao um, Ofunchi Obakoso, President of the Association Yoruba Cuba del Estado of Minnesota, Babalao Shaman, and Indigenista, Luchado por los Derechos. Eh, por los derechos humanos entonces estoy a la disposición de ustedes translator uh, his name is um, I didn't quite catch the name right away but he's saying that he's the president for an organization in Minnesota uh, do you guys want me to translate Yoruba Kiwa Asociación Yoruba Kiwa Asociación ok uh, that's the association name. Y la última, la otra parte que dijo, señor. Eh, soy eh, Babalao Shaman. Babalao Shaman, es otra organización, correcto? No, Babalao Shaman <laughs> es um, eh, es mi mi posición. O sea, quién soy? Soy un Babalao. Un Babalao es es el rango. Eh, mayor que recibe un sanador en, en lo que es eh, la tradición eh, yoruba. Okay. Por tanto, eh, uh, es un sanador, es un guía espiritual eh, y también okay. eh, durante años trabajo para eh, derechos humanos. Ok, so for many years he has been a spiritual guide and a healer for his community. And he has worked in human rights. He's a human rights advocate for many years. ¿Suena bien, señor? Sí. Si usted quiere, yo puedo hacerlo porque conozco muy bien todo de Ofunchi. Yo, pref sí, yo, yo prefiero que usted lo haga, Jimena. Y así el programa va a ser un éxito y todo va a fluir de maravilla. Okay, no hay problema. Okay, so... Um, uh, Ofunchi Obakoso is a Ifa priest, is a Babalao, which is one of the highest ranks in the shaman religion that comes from Africa. And he's also worked for the past 20 years in human rights. Okay. Crystal? Hi. Thank you also for having us on. It's a real pleasure to talk about these issues. Um, I also work at WOLA as the executive assistant and internship coordinator. Um, and I have a particular interest and um, passion in the plight of Afro-descendants in the Americas and thinking about how they utilize their identity politics and also cultural traditions in order to advocate for the rights they deserve. Okay, good, good, good. Crystal, let's start with you. Could you give us a reason why did you and Sister Sanchez feel the need to write this article dealing with the UN decade of Afro-descendants depends on us. What can you tell right, us about um, the social economic conditions you know, faced by the Afro defendants in the Americas? So I think it's important to first think about what the international decade of Afro descendants is and what it um, implies for people of, Afro de uh, people of African descent in the Americas. Um, so it, it started off as a um, consequence of the 2001 World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa. And the conference was revolutionary. Um, it brought together all of these international actors who 
really sought to understand, treat, and prevent racial discrimination. Um, so what they did was create this program of action um, that, one, recognized the necessity for states to consider um, what racial discrimination has, um, how it's impacted people of African descent, but it's also created in an agenda of sorts um, for states to implement new changes that would help um, redress the um, negative effects of um, colonialism, of the um, Atlantic slave trade, um, things like that. And um, it also sought to urge states to take special action on issues like healthcare, education, the private sector, um, and, and recognize, too, the historical contributions of people of African descent. So when we think about all of these different um, aspects of the decade and of the program of action, it really, um, it really touched us as something that's necessary for us to talk about. One, because there's a lack of awareness of the decade itself. Um, there's a lack of awareness of why it needs to occur. Um, there's been countless occasions where I've heard people say that there's no people of African descent in the Americas. And so when we think about that rhetoric and what it means for um, invisibilizing entire groups of people, um, and in the article you can see there are at least 200 million people who identify, self-identify as um, being of African descent. Um, the, the systemic way in which these people are invisibilized and in which they're denied their rights is, is really tragic. And so the decade is a necessary, a necessary um, way for us to really rethink um, the ways um, people of African descent are able to um, advocate for themselves and are able to reach the rights that, once again, I mentioned they deserve. Um, and so in a lot of the different countries, we can see that people of African descent are often in the lowest socioeconomic um, levels. Um, their access to education, to, he to health care, is not where it should be, especially in comparison to the majority culture as well. And then when we also consider the, um, the ways in which um, Afro-descendant culture is kind of um, co-opted by um, the, the majority society, it's really interesting to see how um, people of African descent are at once present, but at the same time um, kind of seen as this part of this romanticized past. And so for all of these different reasons, we thought it was necessary to talk about the decade, talk about um, the actions that are necessary to bring attention to it and also to implore state actors, international bodies to really consider the program of action and consider um, what we can all do to push it forward. So, Crystal, can you, in terms of this, this region, we talk about Central, South American Caribbean, um, and we talk about this whole question of Afro-descendants or Afro-Latinos. Can you give us some examples in terms of this question of, around race and this issue of racism? Um, what's, what's happening in that world when we start talking about this whole impact on Afro-descendants in, the, in these regions as relates to race and right. racism? Right. So I think when we think about racism first, a lot of times we think about explicit forms of racism, right? So we think about um, people being called racial slurs. We think about people being denied access to 
public spaces. Um, and this is something that definitely occurs, but at the same time, it's necessary that we draw attention to the implicit forms of racism that exist in Latin America. Um, after the wars of independence, a lot of countries decided to, or not, well, yeah, kind of decided to um, take on this notion of um, mestizaje, which is like racial mixing, or um, blanqueamiento, right? So um, whitening in terms of thinking about how they are as a nation. So what that means is that um, when considering what the nation looks like, um, Afro-descendant peoples are often pushed to the side because they don't represent necessarily this multicultural kind of understanding of what the nation is. And so what that turns into is um, this kind of, mm, it, it becomes hard for people to um, speak out against racism because in a lot of countries, there's this notion that there's a racial di democracy in which racism doesn't exist. Um, and this is especially the case when you consider it to, or when you compare um, certain countries to the United States where explicit forms of racism, especially during Jim Crow, was um, broadcasted around the world. So when you um, think about racism, it's necessary to think about implicit ways that it manifests. For example, um, when you think about Cuba and when you think about the lucrative way in which the tourism industry acts, um, we need to question why is it that there's not a lot of, um, or that people of African descent are often overlooked in those positions. Oftentimes, um, the 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 result or the the reason for that that people give is that, well, they don't necessarily have a good appearance, right, in quotations. But when good appearance is likened to um, having European features, um, when good hair, when um, good skin is likened to European features, it often allows us to um, necessarily discriminate against people of African descent and people who have these features. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a very difficult topic to address when you're not able to call it as you see it. Um, and then there's there's a lot of explicit forms of racism as well. Um, we see blackface that's, um, that's featured on Colombian TV shows such as Soldado Micolta, which um, sparked a huge debate, um, especially from Afro-Colombian peoples and um, a protest as well. And then also in um, in Miami, we've seen recently in in 2018 there was a, a play, Three Widows on a Cruise, in which um, a Cuban American woman um, donned white face or blackface in order to um, in order to draw laughs. And so we have to wonder and we have to think about why is it that um, when you don blackface, when you uh, present yourself as less intelligible and um, it, um, associate yourself with certain stereotypes, why is that acceptable? Um, so those are some examples of the types of racism that we see today. Well, let's go to Sister Sanchez. Sister Sanchez, recently your organization issued urgent action to had some alarming and sobering cases concerning Afro-descendants. Can you talk a little bit about this? Sure. Well, uh, Colombia in particular has been uh, just finishing an internal conflict that went on for more than five decades. That armed conflict disproportionately impacted Afro-descendant and indigenous people, making Colombia 
the country with the largest displaced population in the world, close to 8 million people. And of those 8 million people, a disproportionate number, over 2.5 million, are Afro-descendant. Why? Because Afro-descendant peoples um, during the time of slavery uh, fled to areas uh, that were in remote parts of the country to get away from slavery, but then also to establish their own autonomous societies. There are multiple Palenques, which are um, free black states throughout um, the Americas, but in particular in Colombia. So for a very long time, Afro-descendant people basically preserved the land, uh, lived a sustainable lifestyle where there was rotating agriculture, fishing, and what have you, and took care of uh, the biodiversity and the minerals. In more recent times, those particular areas have come to be of interest, first for the illegal groups, because these are areas that provided forest cover and other geographical limitations that allowed for uh, drug traffickers to be able to use those areas as routes, which had a very detrimental effect on the people in those areas because the different groups would fight over the areas. And then more so because there's been an alliance between politics and economics and war in Colombia that has led to uh, deliberate attempts to physically uh, displace or exterminate people from certain areas so that outside companies that are non-Afro can come in, both from the national and international level, to plant um, different um, crops like oil palm and also to try and um, exploit the mineral resources under the soils of those lands. And so Afro-descendant people were basically um, a problem because they would resist uh, displacement. They would not go along with giving up their lands. Um, and also uh, because just their existence there that we've had in the past 50 years in Colombia and then um, Five years ago, a peace process started, and two years ago, a peace agreement was signed. So you would think the peace agreement's been signed. Uh, this peace agreement actually upholds Afro-Colombian and indigenous rights because the Afro-Colombian movement, the indigenous movement, did a whole global campaign to make that happen. Um, and so you would think things would be better. Unfortunately, they're not. What we've seen is that uh, the peace ended, and it's been uh, two years and more than 423 social leaders have been killed. And of those killed, a majority have been Afro-descendant and indigenous, precisely for the many reasons that I mentioned before. Um, in some of these areas, peace, so to speak, took out the rebel group from the area, but paved the way for outsider groups, paramilitaries, and others linked to economic projects to go in and take over these lands. And so we're seeing a high rate of Afro-descendant leaders and indigenous leaders who are defending their land titles and their land rights because Afro-Colombians and indigenous in Colombia have collective land titles um, because they don't want these outsiders to take over their lands for economic purposes, whether they're legal or illegal. We've also seen that um, because the guerrillas, uh, in a sense, provided a kind of cover for people, not necessarily protection, but 
It made it harder for other groups and others to go into their areas because the guerrillas were passing through those areas. Um, that it's been easier for paramilitary groups to get at people and to kill people. But all of this um, wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the fact that the state really um, does nothing to protect Afro-descendants and indigenous people. Um, the state, uh, the cases that come before the state, very few of them are actually investigated. Almost none of them come to some kind of results where people are put in jail. In the very few cases where you've seen advancements, like in the case of a uh, leader that um, I worked with for many, many years who was assassinated two years ago, his name is Fernando Cuero of Afrodis, um, he was assassinated. The first thing that the state did was say that they had nothing to do with this assassination, that it was somehow his fault. This is after three years of him lobbying at all levels to try to get protection from the state. And then after, there was an investigation only because there was so much international pressure on his case, especially from the Congressional Black Caucus. And what happened? Um, two of his sons were killed for being, um, uh, you know, part of the whole effort of the investigation. And half of his family now uh, first fled from where they were located to another part of Colombia and now are in Spain in exile because of death threats and because of assassination attempts. And that's one of the successful cases. So you can only imagine what the hundreds of other cases are like where um, it hasn't, hasn't even gotten that far. The point is that the Colombian government has not shown any interest in using any of the tools that it has to be able to protect people of African descent and indigenous people. Uh, it could be because politics in Colombia is very much permeated by um, large-scale economic interests. And, um, you know, the politicians in Bogota have the same interests as many of these multinationals in the areas we're talking about. So what happened in the past couple weeks? Something that we haven't seen in Colombia in a while, which is an increase in massacres. So you've had these selective assassinations taking place the past two years, and you've had this ongoing displacement taking place. What you haven't seen in the past two years has been what you have in the past six months, which is a series of massacres. So our urgent action calls attention to the fact that in Buenaventura port, the most important port for exports and imports in Colombia, which is a island off of the side of the continent on the Pacific side of the country, um, where the majority population is Afro-descendant, um, and there's been a big effort to displace that population out of that island so that the port infrastructure can be built. And unfortunately, um, well, first, they can't do that because legally those are lands that are collective lands belonging to the Afro-descendants. But apart from that, um, it's an area that um, the people who live there who are Afro-descendant have no other place to go. And the way that they've been able to sustain themselves is by continuing to fish. If they were to leave the areas, they can no longer fish, and they will be basically um, become part of the shanty towns in other parts of Colombia. So there's a big battle in terms of land going on and tremendous pressure to get people to leave those lands. So what has been happening? You've seen illegal paramilitary groups. The way that they foment terror to get people to displace and get out of the area is by making a show of violence, by being very sadistic, very cruel, 
uh, cutting people into pieces, you know, um, doing all sorts of elaborate, uh, horrific things to get people to move out. Um, very common is the attacking of um, women, uh, women thought to be the girlfriend or the wife of a someone that um, they're trying to get out, and that woman is tortured and then killed in public. Um, and so we've seen this tremendous violence there, really with this interest of displacing that uh, people from that area so that multinationals can come in, international capital can come in, a lot of this was uh, very much supported by the U.S.-Columbia Free Trade Agreement, which is why Afro-descendants were so adamantly opposed to the Colombia-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. But it's not just U.S. and Colombia. There are about 14 other tra- trade agreements that have to with countries throughout the world that are impacting this. And um, anyhow, uh, the situation is, is very dire, and the increase in such massacres is something that we are certainly incredibly concerned about. All of the alarms have been raised, um, and at this point what we need is more solidarity, um, more um, Pan-African solidarity, more solidarity from all over the world to really um, see what can be done to stop these killings. Okay, let me just go to Brother Ofunchi. Now, I understand that given your experience as a spiritual leader, can you talk a little bit about how the current politics in America is affecting the Afro-descendants? Can you translate that? Um, sí. to my brother? Senor, Bueno, Primero, gracias a, a el programa darnos la, la oportunidad de ser partícipe de, con, junto con, con ustedes, más like con la condición de chamán. No es no uh-huh. es muy común en en un programa eh, como este que eh, un chamán eh, tenga la oportunidad de, de de hablar. Entonces, para nosotros es Eh, importante y, y sentimos gratitud en so, sentido thank you for allowing me to be on the program today um, it is not very common for shaman uh, to be invited to speak about these issues so I feel a lot of gratitude for the opportunity en sentido general eh, es un problema que durante años Eh, venimos eh, discutiendo y trabajando duramente eh, con nuestros hermanos afrodescendientes e indígenas. So the eh, issues that we're talking about today are issues that we've been working on for many years alongside other afrodescendants and indigenous. Nueve meses antes que el, que el actual presidente de los Estados Unidos eh, llegara a poder, eh, ya nosotros sabíamos que él iba a, a ser presidente de los Estados Unidos y cómo esto iba a influir de manera negativa con relación a los afrodescendientes. So nine months before uh, the current president of the United States was elected, 
we knew that he would become the president of the United States, and we knew that this was going to negatively influence Afro descendants in the region. Por tanto, nos, nos dimos la tarea de eh, eh, de hablarle a nuestra gente y prepararlo basado en cómo la, las políticas de nuestros gobiernos, hablando en sentido figurado, af afectan tanto la espiritualidad de nuestra gente. So we embarked on an effort to prepare our people about how the politics of our governments, and by this I mean the whole region, are affecting us spiritually. Quiere decir que el, el cúmulo durante años de falta de hogar, eh, deterioro en, en las familias, los crímenes en muchas regiones como en Colombia, Brasil, Honduras, por ejemplo, a nuestros hermanos garífonas, por citar eh, ejemplos breves, eh, afecta de manera extrema a nuestra gente. Y esto se debe a que eh, la falta de hogar, la falta de estabilidad emocional, la falta de tener la posibilidad de tener una voz, la falta de unidad incluso entre nosotros mismos, nosotros los afrodescendientes, que es un factor que, que influye, incluso determina en lo que está aconteciendo actualmente, eh, eso es de, es de, es de preocupar eh, en sentido general. There's been a lack of people feeling that they have a home, a deterioration of their rights, a high number of crimes, especially in Colombia, Brazil, and for the Garifuna brothers in Honduras. And what we're seeing is that most of these dynamics are affecting our people in particular in an extreme manner. Um, so the lack of having a house, the lack of having stability, the lack of having a voice, and coupled with that, in some cases, the lack of unity among the Afro-descendants, that's all coming together and affecting us spiritually. Por tanto, en este decenio afrodescendiente, en los cinco años que, que ya llevamos con el decenio afrodescendiente, hemos tenido un retroceso histórico donde el movimiento afro se ha debilitado y se ha debilitado por la falta de eh, credibilidad en nosotros mismos como individuos, falta de esperanza y tiene que ver con ese gran poder de la supremacía blanca que ha tomado una fuerza tenaz en el momento histórico que estamos viviendo. So in the five years of the, so far of the ten years of the decade of Afro-descendants in the Americas, we've seen a regression, a historical regression when it comes to Afro-Colombians. The Afro-Colombians, uh, I mean the Afro-descendants. Afro-descendants movement has been weakened. 
uh, in many cases, its credibility has been lost, and also it's become rather individualized. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that white supremacy has become uh, particularly strong. Ha aumentado nuestra gente en las cárceles estadounidenses. Si hace unos años era 40%, ahora sobrepasa el 40% de nuestra gente encarcelada, negras y afrolatinos en las cárceles estadounidenses. Entonces, ¿qué esperanza vamos a tener? Por tanto, vivimos un proceso de energía totalmente negativa que hace que perdamos credibilidad en nuestros ancestros y en, y en nuestra propia lucha. And so we've seen, for example, what used to be that 40% of those in jails were our population now has gone far higher than that. That gives us, what kind of hope does it give us? Um, we see that there's this tremendous um, negative energy that's really affecting our um, credibility. Y esa energía negativa tiene que ver con el descontento. Un descontento que hace que caigamos en una depresión fuera de control y que nos hace ser agresivos con nosotros mismos. Y eso es una preocupación que, que tenemos nosotros los sanadores, puesto que es un trabajo paulatino que los poderes dominantes han hecho para dividirnos. So that negative energy, what it does, it basically leads to a general dissatisfaction and it leads to a uh, strong depression amongst us. That depression leads us to be aggressive and even amongst ourselves worries us who work in, the, in healing. But it's important to realize that a lot of this has come from the dominant powers imposing this on us with the view to divide us. El ejemplo está lo que está aconteciendo en Brasil con el actual nuevo, con, con el nuevo presidente que nos está quitando todo el derecho prácticamente de, eh, de poder vivir como, como seres humanos. So the big en Colombia, would be in Brazil. You have a new president who's basically taken all actions to take away all of our rights in that country. En Colombia todo lo que está aconteciendo en la zona del Pacífico, como, como ya nuestras, como ya eh, Jimena y, y nuestra colega eh, pusieron ejemplo. Entonces todo esto trae, desde el punto de vista espiritual, un eh, deterioro que es el tiempo donde nosotros tenemos que actuar como los mega pequeña, pero conoce el secreto de la tierra, pero trabaja en coalición. Por tanto, eh, nosotros nos hemos dado la tarea de reforzar los movimientos afro a nivel eh, en, en América Latina con la esperanza de, partiendo de esa credibilidad o esa lucha que iniciaron nuestros ancestros durante décadas, poder nosotros alzar nuestras voces que no están calladas, pero sí reprimidas, para poder avanzar y poder tener un resultado positivo como realmente queremos tener. So the other example is what's happening all along the Pacific coast of Colombia, already mentioned by 
uh, my colleagues. So this um, spiritual deterioration really makes us have to go back and act like as if we were ants. The ant is small. It lives on the earth. And what it does to survive is it works in coalition. We need to reinforce our um, Afro-Latino movements in Latin America, and we need to take into account what the struggles were of our ancestors. We need to raise our voices, not that we're not raising them, they're just repressed, and advance forward. Pero es interesante lo que está aconteciendo. Si lo, si lo vemos desde el punto de vista de IFA, por la parte ya tradicional. Estamos hablando de Ofun, que Ofun es un orden donde habla eh, sobre la desesperación y donde habla sobre lo bueno y lo malo, donde se mezcla lo positivo con lo negativo. So if we look at it from the point of view of Ifa, which is the spiritual tradition, and we look at it from eh, the Ofun Odum, Odum is a uh, like a chronicle that the shaman are able to um, interpret. There we see that there is great desperation, and there the good and the bad, the positive and the negative, are fighting each other. Y donde Ofun nos dice la importancia de que si no nos toman en cuenta, entonces simplemente el mundo en sentido general, va a decaer. Simplemente vamos a caer en la zona oscura donde no, donde no deberíamos decaer. Por tanto, la importancia o el tiempo de que los dominantes o los gobiernos dominantes nos tomen en cuenta, puesto que la, 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 la fortaleza de la, de la ancestralidad proviene de nosotros. So if we look at it from the uh, Odum, uh, from Ofun, um, we need to make sure that um, it's very important that we um, take this and do something about it um, because if we don't, it won't just be us falling, but also the whole world falling apart. So it's important... Eso quiere, eso quiere decir que lo que está que lo que está aconteciendo en los movimientos aquí en América Latina, los movimientos afro en América Latina, está afectando también al mundo occidental, está afectando a Europa. Por tanto, no hay hecho, no hay hecho aislado. Y eh, con nuestra experiencia eh, nos damos cuenta que es el tiempo de nosotros reunificarnos, de organizarnos y apartarnos un poco del egocentrismo y el eurocentrismo y el eurocentrismo que hace que la parte económica haga que muchos de nuestros líderes afro se conviertan en nuestros enemigos y eso es un problema que estamos viendo actualmente so um, it's important um just to put it in other words, that uh, what's happening with the Afro-descendants in Latin America also affects the Occident, it affects Europe. It's not isolated. That's why we need to come together and unify. 
We also need to have our movements get away from egocentrism. For example, our leaders who are leave us once um, they see some economic opportunity. Um, it's important that um, we come back from that. Pienso que tenemos mucho que hacer, pero eh, pienso que por el momento es suficiente lo que that he can talk more, but that's his initial thought. And we'll get a chance to do that, but right now we're going to have to pause for the calls. We're going to take a station break, and when we come back, we will continue the discussion on the history and the condition and the allergies of African people in this, this region that we call the Central South and the Caribbean with our three guests. When we come back, we will open up to our panelists, and we will continue the discussion. You are listening to Africa on the Move. We're going to pause for this cause, and we'll be right back. That's 
That's right. Don't be no Buffalo soldier. We were slowly from Africa and brought to the Americas. We are discussing the conditions and realities of the Africans in Central, South, and the Caribbean in no regions. Right now, we're walking back to Africa on rule, and we'd like to remind you that this program is a community project of the African Awareness Association. So right now, we're coming back to our guests, and we're just opening it up right now to our panelists. Uh, panelists, we of course would like to be bringing Brother Haki. Brother Haki, we'll turn the mic over to you. Uh, your questions or comments to our panelists tonight on the subject area. Yeah, first I want to say how much I appreciate uh, the knowledge and the acumen uh, of your guest. Uh, it's very important that we understand that this problem that we that we confront as a people is global. And one of the things we've been trying to get people to understand when we talk about you know political policy, we get very, very clear on there's a contrived dimension uh, to this policy. Uh, one of the things they've been doing, in particular um, the Europe, I mean the U.S. and England, along with the rest of the West, one of the things they've been doing is that they've been uh, creating a scenario in which increasingly uh, more and more money is being given to the top. And what happens is that as a result of giving more and more money to the top, that means that one of two things is going to happen. Either you have a revolutionary leadership uh, of individuals or individuals come in positions of power to sort of ameliorate, to make things better for the masses of folks who understand what's going on, or you have a situation where you have the more fascistic uh, or the more racist, the more roguish element come in positions of power which tend to reinforce the inequities or the injustices inflicted upon people of color, uh, you know, in, in the respective countries. So I want to... I really appreciate the fact that the audience has, I mean, the, your, your guests have a, a grand understanding in terms of this dynamic. But one thing, the question I want to ask um, your guests is just, given, given the systemic nature in terms of what's, what's happening to our people, um, I'm just curious, uh, in terms of the, 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 the brothers and sisters' per, uh, perception of Africans born in America, what is their perception of Africans born in America? Because one of the things is that because we're right here in the belly of the beast, uh, you know, uh, clearly we're in a position to see firsthand, you know, exactly what's going on. But I'm just wondering uh, what is the perception of, of Africans, you know, in Central and South America as relates to Africans born in America? So, Sanchez, can you take that one first? And then we'll go. Sure. Um, so, it's important. It's important to understand a couple things about um, Latin America, which is a bit different than the United States, but would also come as a shock, I think, to people of African descent in the United States. While the history taught in school in the U.S. is completely insufficient and obviously very uh, skewed and, and very much from a white supremacist perspective, there actually is some, something taught. In the case of Latin America, in most cases, people are not taught anything. They're not taught about the transatlantic slave trade. They're not taught where, they're, where they come from. I've encountered multiple Afro-descendants who were shocked to hear that they were originally from Africa. And so the, the first thing is that uh, to understand is that the level of um, self-understanding of uh, their own history is something that they know very little about. But um, for those who, who, who know more of that history, there's a tremendous admiration and respect 
for African Americans and what African Americans have gone through. And often, um, you know, without completely understanding all the dynamics, but more getting sort of the pop version of it that they may see from, you know, TV or from uh, what have you, um, there's a, an effort to try to replicate that in their own communities. Um, but, um, you know, they're coming from a, a, a space where I would say if the United States still has so far to go when we talk about places like Colombia or Brazil, we're the U.S. 150 years ago still. And so, um, you know, the, the, the level of entrenchment of um, this uh, classism and, and, and racism is such at all levels that um, it, it's, uh, it's very difficult for even some of the Afro-descendants in some of their communities to understand even how bad their situation is. Crystal, your perspective on the question? Hello, hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hi, yeah, I'd like to agree with everything Jimena just mentioned. Um, As somebody who is African-American, traveling to different countries and engaging with um, Afro-Latinos has been very interesting in the sense of, one, recognizing um, the different ways we see race in terms of the different categories um, or the different racial perceptions in terms of who is black, who is not black, thinking about the one-drop rule versus this um, varied spectrum of who can be considered black and and everything in between as well. Um, And so that in itself has been an interesting experience. And then I think also um, thinking about the different privileges that are associated with um, coming from the United States and what that means if we think about um, U.S. um, exceptionalism um, and how that um, idea can um, create this this sense of authority that um, we kind of have to make sure we fight against, especially when we're engaging um, across borders and with people who speak different languages and making sure that we can all connect on a um, common theme and make sure that we can all fight for our, our for all of our liberation. So, yeah, I think it, it, it's interesting to see how we all, come together to unlearn a lot of um, what's been taught to us and also just celebrate in our own um, cultural uniqueness. And Sister Sanchez, you're going to have to translate right now. We're going to have to translate Would you make the question to Brother Ofunchi and get a response to the question? Ofunchi, ¿cuál es el punto de vista de los Afro-Latinos en las Américas sobre los Afro-Americanos En Estados Unidos. Una pregunta maravillosa. Una pregunta maravillosa. Eh, Hay un mito. eh, Hay un mito. Es interesante cómo el eh, afrolatino, como nuevo concepto eh, en el momento histórico que estamos viviendo, afrolatino, que eh, en sentido figurado ven al afroamericano como una esperanza. Esa es mi experiencia. Lo ven como una esperanza eh, basado en eh, que al estar 
eh, admirar al afroamericano dentro del mismo corazón de la bestia, ven la posibilidad de que ellos eh, pueden alzar la voz más desde el punto de vista que están eh, más cerca de, eh, del gobierno más poderoso del mundo. No olvidemos que los grandes problemas que suceden en América Latina o los grandes problemas que suceden a los eh, al movimiento afrolatino viene de eh, de la dinastía de aquí de los Estados Unidos quiere decir que es Estados Unidos es el gobierno de los Estados Unidos quien le impone y presiona a los gobiernos en las Américas para no hacer cumplir realmente las leyes o que se eh, o, las leyes o el derecho a nosotros los afrodescendientes. Entonces, so that is el afrolatino... This is a marvelous question. Um, there are a lot of myths. Um, it's interesting to see that um, afro-latino, which is really a new concept uh, that has just been uh, around really today, um, afro-latinos are seized African Americans as 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 a beacon of hope, um, based on the fact that they see African Americans living in the heart of the beast, and they see that within the possibility of being there, that um, they could also make noise and that they could have their voices uh, come much closer and even get to higher positions in government. The problem, um, however, comes from the fact of the history of the U.S. and Latin America. The U.S has had a dynasty over the governments of Latin America. Often our governments in Latin America have followed or been forced to through pressure or through imposition of the United States not to um, apply our laws and not to apply our, the rights to Afros in the Americas. Quiere decir que el Afro-Latino cuando cuando mira al afroamericano, piensa en Luther King, en Malcolm X, en todos esos próceres eh, afroamericanos que, que en un momento histórico jugaron un papel clave en la lucha para las Américas, para, o sea, en, en sentido general, tanto aquí en los Estados Unidos como en las Américas. Por tanto, vemos, o el afro latino ve al afroamericano como un mito, y cuando digo un mito, es un mito falso, puesto que el afroamericano no ve así al afrolatino, lo ve como un grupo o un subgrupo que no tiene que ver nada con ellos cuando en, en la base el sufrimiento es igual o, o muy parecido. Y es una contradicción que desde el punto de vista eh, espiritual tiene que ver con egoísmo y ese egoísmo también hace que crea un problema o una falta de esperanza. So Afro-Latinos, when they think of African Americans, they think of uh, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. They think of these leaders who played a key role in particular time and history for the U.S. and the Americas. So Afro-Latinos really see 
a mythologized view of African Americans. And this is really a false myth because we don't see that African Americans see Afro-Latinos that same way. Often um, they're seen as a subgroup, um, but who've suffered the same, but due to egoism and other reasons um, is not attended to. Entonces, cuando seamos capaces o cuando el afroamericano junto con el afro latino una se una como una red o una telaraña fuerte, poderosa, podemos decir entonces que sí podemos avanzar, por ejemplo, en la agenda afrodescendiente. De cada 10 afroamericanos que usted le pregunta sobre el diseño afrodescendiente, uno, acá, uno si acaso te responde que sí conoce sobre el diseño afrodescendiente. Quiere decir que Estados Unidos o el movimiento afro estadounidense en su mayoría no pone tanto énfasis en el diseño afrodescendiente, que eso nos afecta, que es triste, pero nos afecta tanto espiritualmente como eh, 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 materialmente, económicamente. Eso es un problema. Serio. So, when we are capable of unifying African Americans and Afro Latinos, create a network or what I would say is more like a spider's web that is strong and powerful, then we can say that we're really going to be able to advance. Out of one out of every 10 African Americans, perhaps, that you ask about the Afro-descendant decade will know what that's about. Um, so there really is no emphasis within the United States among Afro-Americans on the decade. And this is sad because the purpose of the decade and the issues within the decade are particularly important in terms of how they affect Afro-Latinos in terms of materially and in other ways. Entonces, la pregunta que nos estamos la pregunta que, que nos estamos haciendo es ¿qué ha pasado? ¿Qué está pasando en el momento histórico, en el momento actual? Porque cuando Marcon X hablaba no solamente se refería a los negros o a los afrodescendientes de aquí de los Estados Unidos, sino hablaba en sentido general. Y nosotros actualmente, hablando en sentido figurado, hemos perdido eso. Lo hemos perdido. Por eso oh. el avance es poco. So what we need to do is ask what is happening within the current context because when Malcolm X talked about Afro-descendants, he wasn't just talking about Afro-Americans, but he was also speaking about Afro-descendants in general. And today we've lost that selectivity, and that's what we need to get back. Cuando el Afro-Latino mira, por ejemplo, cuando el Afro-Latino mira al Afro-Americano, Seguimos, seguimos buscando esa esperanza de que se sensibilicen con lo que ocurre en nuestros países de América Latina. Lo que ocurre en Colombia, que no hay hecho aislado. Aquí matan, allá matan. Aquí asesinan, 
en Brasil, en Colombia, o sea, en muchos países de América Latina matan igual, asesinan a nuestra gente. Entonces, eh, eso es un punto eh, eh, que aprecio que usted en este programa maravilloso eh, lo, lo mencione. So when the Afro-Latino um, looks at the African-Americans, what it's really looking for is for them to be sensitive to what's happening. So people are being killed here in the U.S., but they're also being killed there in Brazil, in Colombia, in other um, countries of Latin America. So I really appreciate you bringing up um, this point because I think it's very important. Okay, let's go to the next panelist. Anthony, your question, comments, please. Certainly. Uh, uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, uh, the four guests for uh, uh, taking their time uh, out of their busy schedules to participate in this program this evening. Uh, I found uh, uh, the, the, the information very enlightening. <laughs> Uh, my question uh, uh, to, uh, to, to the guests is: um, they are uh, there are some uh, uh, societies in Central and South America and the Caribbean that are struggling to build socialism. Uh, Cuba, Venezuela, and Bolivia are some examples that come to mind, and. Um, My question to you is, do, are the conditions of Africans in those countries, uh, do they have better tools to combat racism than those Africans in other countries that are dominated by neocolonialism, such as Brazil, Colombia, Chile, uh, Argentina? Can we start with Christopher? Can we start with Christopher? Then we go to Sanchez. Then we go to our brother. Crystal, your response to the question. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question. In terms of whether um, Afro descendants in these countries, in Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, are more able to fight for their own, um, I guess, um, their their own well-being. Um, that's really interesting. I I I wouldn't necessarily want to compare them, I'd like to think about the unique ways that these countries kind of force Afro-descendants to um, face certain struggles. For example, if we think about Cuba and we think about how it's a socialist country that's supposed to um, offer the same benefits to everyone, there are very unique ways in which racism and racialized policies still affect people of African descent. For example, if we think about reparations and how Um, after after the Cuban Revolution, a lot of the people who left in Exodus were um, majority white Cuban Americans. When they come to the U.S. and when they send back um, part of their salaries, send back um, different items that people can sell once they're in Cuba, that um, in effect um, creates a higher division in terms of um, socioeconomic standards for people of African descent versus those who are not simply because of the way um, socialism isn't necessarily, or the way people who um, left the country are able to help those who remained. And so we have to think, I, I, I think your question is really interesting in terms of thinking about 
how are the different conditions in which Afro-descendants live? How do they um, still manage to replicate um, similar situations of racism? And I think um, the situation of reparations for Afro-descendants in Cuba is a great example of that. Sure. Well, um, I think Apunji um, is going to talk about um, this pretty well because that's his, his own personal experience. But what I can talk about is how um, the revolutionary movement um, who espouse Marxism and socialism in uh, Colombia have dealt with this issue and basically um, very badly. Um, we've seen that a revolutionary movements have persecuted um, Afro-descendants, uh, basically negated their identity. Um, and part of it was because they have autonomous rights or the collective land rights and the reestablishment of culture and preservation of Afro-descendant culture as being a challenge to their revolutionary movement. Um, many of the revolutionary groups in Colombia, because there's been more than 13 different guerrilla groups, and, um, so I'm not just talking about the largest one, um, see that the problem of um, inequality is one of class and that everyone should be the same and um, have basically been opposed to talking about the issue of race or identity. This was made very apparent during the time that the Afro- Colombian and indigenous movement was trying to get their rights and their autonomous um, ideas placed in the peace accord. I mean, the FARC was totally opposed to this and they did not see why it was important. They did not see um, how um, or why they should do this. And part of it really has been that it's seen as an affront uh, to power, being different or reasserting different languages because uh, the people in Colombia of Afro descent and indigenous people speak many different languages. Um, it was seen as, as, as a, uh, somehow undermining the revolutionary movement. Um, one beautiful thing that happened though was with interaction over a period of time in a peaceful manner because most of the groups dominated that they controlled where Afro-descendant people lived in a violent way by the gun. But in a, in a talking situation, they were able to start to understand what was really going on. And uh, members of the FARC, for example, even started um, reasserting their Afro-descendant roots and actually um, being very supportive of Afro-Colombian and indigenous identity once they were able to understand it further. But I think the context of war, the context of control and buying for territory um, initially rejected um, any idea of um, identity of being Afro-descendant or having collective rights. And to Sanchez, can you articulate the question to yes. Él quiere saber eh, cómo en algunas sociedades donde se ha tratado de crear socialismo, como Cuba, Venezuela y Bolivia, y en esas situaciones eh, afrodescendientes han podido tener más oportunidad para combatir el racismo. Reitero que es una pregunta interesante, pero yo le voy a hablar 
desde mi punto de vista. La mayoría de... Eh, la mayoría de, de los estadounidenses eh, hablan, eh, se toman la, la atribución de eh, hablar o de hacer comentarios de países de, de, de hacer comentarios de países como si fueran parte de la cultura sin entender muy bien la idiosincrasia de esos países. So I'm going to answer the question from my point of view. Um, I think it's an interesting question. So the majority of people from the United States tend to take the attribution of talking about um, these countries without fully understanding the idiosyncrasies that exist in those countries. Es cierto que sí, los blancos que salieron al principio de la Revolución Cubana en 1959 ayudan ahora a su familia. Es cierto. Pero también es cierto que el gobierno de los Estados Unidos se presta para entonces, a precio de una McDonald's, contratar a los negros, a muchos negros en Cuba, para dividir y crear un caos y dividirnos a nosotros, dentro y fuera del movimiento afrodescendiente. Y eso tenemos que tenerlo claro. So, yes, it's true that many white Cubans who fled to the 1959 revolution do help um, a lot of their families, but it's also important to notice how the government of the United States, for the price of utilizing people Um, basically at a low wage like one you would have in McDonald's um, has very much tried to divide Afro-Cubans uh, both within Cuba and outside of Cuba. Quiere decir que esos mismos blancos aprecian una McDonald's hace que nos dividamos. Y eso, eso es un problema. Eso trae consigo que, por ejemplo, en Cuba la gente se habla de pobreza y en Cuba no hay pobreza, en Cuba hay escasez. Y eso cuando el estadounidense o la gente de afuera de Cuba lo logra entender, las cosas se pueden entonces ver de otra manera o se puede expresar de otra manera. So in Cuba often outsiders say that there is poverty, but in Cuba there is no poverty. In Cuba, what you have is scarcity of certain goods. And so once we look at it from this perspective, we can start having another conversation. Estoy consciente que en Cuba sí hay racismo. Estoy muy consciente de eso. Pero dentro de ese mismo racismo en Cuba, que tiene que ver con la historia también hay que ver el lado positivo de las cosas. So, in Cuba, there is racism, uh, but within that racism that comes from history, it's important to see what has been the positive side. Entonces, eh, actualmente, eh, el negro, cosa que antes no podía hacer, ya puede... Eh, puede eh, discutir temas, pero, por ejemplo, mi papá, con 90 años, logró terminar su universidad siendo negro en Cuba. 
es un ejemplo, que estando aquí en los Estados Unidos no hubiese tenido esa oportunidad. Pues ese es un ejemplo. So, en Venezuela, many Afro descendants in Cuba are educated and they can discuss issues. For example, my father, um, who died at 90 years of age, was able to finish university in Cuba, something that um, many can't hear in the U.S. Gratuito. De manera gratuita. Free. Y actualmente, con el nuevo gobierno o con los cambios eh, eh, positivos que está teniendo eh, el nuevo sistema en Cuba, eh, la gente puede ya discutir abiertamente sobre el tema de raza. Y eso, eso es un punto eh, importante y positivo que está ocurriendo en Cuba. So now with the new government and with the recent changes with um, the system in Cuba, we see that people are now allowed to openly talk about race issues, and this is something positive. En Venezuela, para no caer en el tema gobierno, porque es un tema delicado, hay un departamento que también eh, eh, trabaja el tema afro, pero ¿qué pasa con eso? ¿Pero qué pasa con eso? Que la derecha dirigida desde aquí trata de boicotear, trata de boicotear, como hicieron hace dos semanas atrás, de quemar una radio en Barlomento donde enfocaba en eh, divulgar cosas que hacía, bueno, el, el movimiento afro en Venezuela. Quiere decir que la derecha, entonces, eh, el lado positivo, digamos, en Venezuela, donde el negro con el difunto Chávez empezó a tener una voz, es bloqueado por los blancos, porque los blancos no les conviene y no quieren que el negro tenga una voz. Por tanto, dentro de, de, de dentro entre comillas de socialismo hay un avance, pero ese avance constantemente está siendo obstruido por los grupos blancos o cierto sector eh, poderoso blanco que obstruye lo que está aconteciendo, eh, lo, los avances del negro. So if we look at Venezuela, I'm not going to get into the issue of the Venezuelan government because that is very complicated. However, within Venezuelan government, there exists a whole department that works on advancing Afro-descendant issues. And those advancements are often being pushed back by the right. The right who um, many times takes their direction from here in the United States have, for example, boycotted um, efforts of advancing Afro-descendants. Two weeks ago, we saw that um, they burnt down a radio station that was basically focused on disseminating Afro-Venezuelan um, information. So what was positive under started under Chavez um, for people who are black has actually been blocked by whites who find it to be very inconvenient and they don't want blacks to have a voice. So socialism, quote unquote, um, has had advancements for 
the issue of racism, but often it's been obstructed by powerful whites. En Bolivia también vemos cambios positivos, no solamente con el afrodescendiente, sino con los indígenas. Por tanto, vemos eh, avances positivos con nuevos mecanismos que eh, la sociedad afrodescendiente e indígena, por ese movimiento eh, eh, muy organizado, eh, se puede lograr y, y ver los, los grandes avances que están sucediendo actualmente que repercute so en las Américas. Bolivia, we see positive changes, not just for Afro-descendants, but also for the indigenous. Under the new uh, the newer government, there's been new mechanisms that were proposed by Afro and indigenous coming together in an organized manner and that's been positive. Pero yo pienso yo pienso que el punto el punto el punto principal es que En esos países, eh, el decenio afrodescendiente, o voy a decir, en esos países, el gobierno ha tomado serio el decenio afrodescendiente, cosa que apenas sucede en los demás países de América Latina, incluyendo los Estados Unidos. So, I guess the point is that in these countries, um, Cuba, Bolivia, and Venezuela, we've seen that the governments have taken the Afro-descendant decade seriously, which is something that can't be said about the other countries in Latin America, nor about the United States. Por tanto, si eliminamos el, el concepto de socialismo dentro del movimiento eh, afrodescendiente y enfocamos en justicia, que es lo que uno de los parámetros del decenio, o desarrollo, por ejemplo, que es uno de los factores clave en, en, en el decenio donde los cambios climáticos afectan totalmente a nuestra gente o la reparación de, de los daños, eh, eso cambiaría mucho y dejaría mucho de decir. So, if we eliminate the whole socialism concept from um, the Afro- uh, descendant movement in the Americas, and we focus on trying to achieve justice and development, um, which are two of the tenets of the UN decade, and very important because climate change in particular is detrimentally affecting our people, can uh, perhaps move forward. Entonces, imagínense, cinco años y todavía Estados Unidos se niega a firmar eh, el convenio sobre derechos humanos o el convenio sobre el derecho de los niños, que somos nosotros los afrodescendientes e indígenas que somos los que más sufrimos. Entonces, eh, pienso que eh, el ejemplo de esos países, aunque no de todo es positivo, es muy diferente a la realidad que estamos viviendo aquí en los Estados Unidos esperanza la esperanza del so, mundo imagine this in five years of the decade the U.S. has not signed the convention on human rights nor the convention on the human rights of the child which 
is an area that specifically detrimentally affects Afro-descendants and indigenous the West in this country. Um, we can say that while these other countries may not be perfect examples of everything, when it comes to this situation, we definitely see that in the case of the rights of Afro-descendants, amongst Afro-descendants there's been advancements and there's also hope amongst those Afro-descendants. Let us do this. We have a caller that's been waiting for a while. We take this one caller, then go into a station break, and we'll come back to our panelists. So this caller has been waiting for patience. For those who are interested in calling, please call it at um, 323-678-0841. 679-0841, press 1, and we will acknowledge your last four number. So we can bring in this caller. Caller, 0246, your question or comment, please. 0246. Greetings. This is uh, Sister Angela calling. Thank you for taking my call, uh, Brother Lee. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Loud and clear. Okay, thank you. Yes, I wanted to, um, well, this is an interesting dialogue. I I came on just a little late, but there's so much information. I really want to go back and dissect it. But one of my my questions, I had two questions. Um, One is, I know this is also the international uh, decade for the African woman, and I'm wondering, you know, amongst um, Afro-descendants in Latin America, what you know, is the role of women in the struggle. Um, and I'm also, you know, I know in America we have two, we have some divisions amongst us as people of African descent. And, you know, I'm wondering how your panelists would describe the spirit of independence among Latin Americans of African descent in the freedom struggle. Um you know, are they waiting for a savior, leader, you know, sort of maybe like a Marcus Garvey, or is it more um, activity and activism on the grassroots level uh, to bubble up in this struggle? So I guess there's two questions. I'm kind of asking about the SPO. Are they, are they in wait mode or are they in active mode? That's my first question. And the second one is, you know, what is the role of the women And then finally, how can we connect? Because I um, am working with uh, different groups of women, and we we will be at the UN in March for the uh, Commission on the Status of Women 63, addressing issues um, around recharge genocide. Um, Also, we have issues uh, with the woman and the skin bleaching issue, and then also advancing financial unity for the global black community. And so I would like to know how we connect, um, you know, with the sisters and the brother on the panel um, so that we can, you know, connect the black dots. So I know I said a lot, but if your panelists could take those questions. Thank you. Start us off, Sister Sanchez, response to her questions okay. and concerns. Well, um, in terms of the spirit question, um, I definitely see that, they're in major active mode when it comes mostly to um, Colombia and it comes to the Dominican Republic, which are the two that I've uh, followed the most and, and worked on the most. Um, in terms of Colombia, I think that um, most of the women have taken on the leadership roles 
uh, partially because many of the men have been killed and also because initially it was thought that as females, um, they uh, could withstand more of the security issues and not be targets. Unfortunately, while that was the case for a very short period of time, that's turned around and now many of the leaders killed are women. So um, unfortunately there, that's what we've seen. Um, in terms of the dynamics within the Afro-descendant movements, however, um, there's really a, a long way to go. Um, there, there has been a real banding together of Afro-descendant and indigenous women on this very issue uh, because it's often um, mostly women who are doing all the work, um, but the protagonists are the ones who get to have a seat at the table at the important meetings are men. And so we've seen uh, the building of, for example, a subcommission on Afro-descendant and indigenous women. And, and in that, um, they've been able to come together and, uh, you know, work out strategies to how to make it more equitable in terms of who actually gets to um, speak and, and, and be like the face of a lot of these issues um, and not just be relegated to what is considered women's issues. Um, there's also been an effort of trying to integrate women's issues within the broader issues more and not have it be so isolated because there is a very high level of violence against women um, in these countries amongst Afro-descendant women. From the femicides that um, I was talking about earlier that happened in places like Buenaventura where specifically women are targeted, uh, killed and tortured to get at the men to also domestic violence, which is very high. Um, I think the way that they can come together would be if you uh, contact us at WOLA, we're happy to connect you with the multiple different um, networks of women that um, we work with uh, very closely. Sister Crystal, thank you. your response to the question. Sister Crystal, your response to the question, please. Right. Um, I think um, in a lot of ways, and, and if I could speak specifically more towards youth as well, I think there's been an interesting trend of movements and connections, especially utilizing social media. Um, people have been connecting in the U.S., in Colombia, in Brazil, in the Caribbean, um, with social media websites like um, um, Instagram and Facebook and really having dialogues about what it means to be black in these specific countries and what different ways people can mobilize in order to create um, strong movements and really implement certain changes. Um, and I think as well, if we talk about women, um, I'd just like to bring attention to two phenomenal women who have um, have really created um, policy-level changes in their country. So there's Francia Marquez, who, um, led 80, who led 80 women to Bogota in Colombia to um, help um, bring attention to the issues that were happening in her town, in her um, community of La Toma. Um, and by utilizing the different cultural traditions, they were able to showcase why they um, should have the respect and why they should um, be able to um, kind of get rid of the illegal gold mining that was happening in her community. And then, of course, there's Marielle Franco, who um, unfortunately was assassinated um, earlier this year, but she was one of um, she was the only black woman um, councilwoman from Rio, um, and she w spoke out on various, various issues such as um, 
police-mandated federal intervention in the favelas that um, mostly affected and negatively affected um, young black youth. And so, like Jimena mentioned, there's a lot of examples of um, black women taking the lead in these um, movements for various reasons um, and really um, creating a change that's necessary and that's beneficial. Um, I'd like to also say that there's been an interesting trend, especially among young groups as well, of bringing attention to um, the different intersections of our identities when thinking about these topics. Um, so thinking about how, like, how we can um, make sure, how we can bring about liberation um, for people, um, for queer people, for women, for young people, um, and figure out how we can restructure the way we think about society in a way that makes um, that allows everyone to feel at least safe. Um, and that's been a really progressive and I think positive um, trend that speaks volumes to the ways that people are um, not sitting back. They're, they're really acting on what they know they deserve. Opunchi, ellos quieren saber eh, primero cuál es el espíritu de los afrodescendientes en las Américas. ¿Están esperando que alguien venga y los salva, que haya un líder que emerge o están tomando acciones? Y la segunda pregunta es sobre el papel de las mujeres eh, en todo esto. Bueno, yo voy a contestar. La, la segunda pregunta va a dar respuesta a la primera pregunta. I'm going to answer the second question first. Eh, en las Américas, por el movimiento eh, afro, en las Américas, nosotros, y voy a decir, eh, nosotros dependemos de la mujer. No hay movimiento en la historia eh, de América Latina que no se ha inspirado por nuestras valiosas guerreras mujeres, valiosísimas val eh, mujeres guerreras. Las so mujeres son... In... Women, um, Afro-descendants in the Americas, uh, are basically who the Afro-descendant movement completely depends on. There's not one movement in Latin America that was not either inspired or supported by brave uh, warrior women. Yo pienso que el espíritu de la revolución de Haití, que fue iniciado por mujeres, todavía sigue latente en la actualidad en el movimiento afro en América Latina. So Por tanto, dependemos de las mujeres. The spirit of the revolution of Haiti, which was initiated by women, um, really is a spirit that continues to be part of different countries in Latin America. And so this means that we completely depend on women. Nuestra sabiduría, porque somos capaces de hacer, tanto hombres como mujeres, Todo eso viene de el vientre o de ese cordón umbilical fortalecido 
por nuestras madres y nuestras mujeres ancianas. Por tanto, eh, las mujeres juegan un papel vital en el movimiento afro, no solamente en América Latina, sino en el mundo entero. So our knowledge, both for men and women, comes from the womb and the strong uh, umbilical cord that we have with our elder women. This is not just Latin America, but the world. Mi sabiduría se la debo a, a mis ancestros mujeres, a mi mamá, a mi abuela, y a todas esas mujeres que en un momento me entrenaron o nos entrenaron para ser quienes somos hoy en la actualidad. So all of the knowledge that I have really comes from my female ancestral line, from my mother, from my grandmother, because um, it was them who really trained us to be who we are today. Lo que pasa es que los términos en la actualidad son manipulados. Pero retomando, tenemos, por ejemplo, aquí el papel de eh, Michelle Obama. Por citar un ejemplo, ¿no? No voy a hablar de Park, voy a hablar de actual, Michelle Obama. Donde ella llegó, o donde llegó Obama, no fue por Obama, fue por la mujer que tenía al lado, sin quitarle o minimizar los méritos de él. Y eso, eso no, nos inspira, no, o sea, eso no, nos da fuerza para poder seguir adelante y mirar hacia el horizonte de manera de esperanza. So, for example, many of the terms when we talk about these issues get manipulated, but we have to look at the role of some women. For example, just to give an example, Michelle Obama, Obama uh, would have not gotten where he was had he not had Uh, the woman of the quality that he had in Michelle Obama. Now, this doesn't take away from his merit or or anything, but um, that's something we can look to in terms of inspiration. La cantidad actualmente de movimientos eh, afro de mujeres que ha aumentado grandísimamente en esta, eh, o sea, en este en este tiempo es esperanzador. So in recent times, we've seen a great growth of Afro-descendant women movements in the Americas, and it's very inspiring. Por tanto, nosotros no podríamos funcionar sin el rol y la y y la la palabra de la mujer. La mujer de por sí es estratega por naturaleza. De hecho, no se puede hablar de naturaleza sin mencionar a la mujer. So uh, we cannot function without the important role that the woman plays because women are strategic by nature and not withstanding the fact that uh, women are nature. Por tanto, el movimiento en sentido general afrodescendiente no está esperando que aparezca un líder ni nada de eso. Ese líder existe en los corazones de los afrodescendientes. So in general, when we look at the Afro-descendant movement, they're really not waiting for a leader or a savior to come and save them because many of 
those leaders actually exist in the heart of a lot of people. Las mujeres están alzando sus voces y nosotros los hombres nos estamos uniendo y estamos viendo un resultado positivo y muy diferente cuando queremos trabajar solo como hombre, como mal concepto, ¿no? So, as we see that women are gaining more spaces and raising their voices, um, we see men and women unifying, and with that we're seeing more positive results than we did when it was just men um, working alone. Quiere decir, yo no me considero una persona eh, fe, eh, feminista, pero sí matriarcalista. So I don't consider myself a feminist, but I do consider myself a matriarchalist. Pienso que el movimiento afrodescendiente eh, actual lo que necesita es reorganizarnos con un enfoque en común donde nadie, ni hembras ni varones, pueda impedir ni detenernos hacia dónde realmente vamos, que es simplemente tener la oportunidad de tener el mismo derecho que todo ser humano pueda tener, nuestro hogar, nuestros hijos, y poderle darle lo mínimo, lo mínimo. No queremos riqueza, tanta riqueza. La riqueza la da la madre de la naturaleza, y la madre de la naturaleza se llama mamá tierra, y mamá tierra es femenina que yo sepa. Y tenemos que tener eso muy muy claro. So what the Afro descendant movement needs to do in the Americas is really reorganize uh joining together with a common focus so that neither female or male can detain it as it moves to where it wants to go and where it really wants to go is to have the same opportunity and rights as others not asking for more than the minimum um, and the minimum and, and, and the riches really come from nature. Por tanto, el movimiento afrodescendiente en las Américas está teniendo resultados eh, eh, resultados grandes y, y eso eh, eso hace que que no tengamos la necesidad de buscar un líder. Pienso que nuestro líder es el sol, y el sol alumbra para el bueno y para el malo. Lo que tenemos que definir muy bien qué camino tomar desde el punto de vista tradicional, desde el punto de vista eh, espiritual. So, we are seeing some results in spite of the obstacles. And so what we need to do is basically um, not necessarily find a leader because we already have a leader, which is the sun that um, warms us and also darkens us. What we really need is to figure out what our path is jointly in the traditional spiritual way. No olvidemos que la sociedad es patriarcal porque fue impuesta por el opresor para quitarle el poder a la mujer, para quitarnos nuestro poder. Y eso en las Américas ya se está frenando gracias a ese eh, despertar 
So let's not forget that the patriarchy was really imposed by an oppressor who saw women as a threat. And in the Americas, we're seeing that there's been an awakening against this in this direction. Cuando Garvin o nuestros líderes no existía la internet, ahora existe la internet. Por tanto, tenemos la fuerza de poder comunicarnos entre sí y poder reorganizarnos de manera seria y precisa. So, during the times of Marcus Garvey, there was no internet. Now we have internet, which gives us the opportunity to be able to reorganize ourselves in a more efficient and in a serious manner. Pienso que eh, tenemos una oportunidad que el destino no está dando. Y la oportunidad está en retomar la tierra, que es abrazar a nuestras mujeres, escucharlas y crear una nueva una nueva estrategia para poder enfocar en justicia, desarrollo, como, so, como hablé al principio. Right now I believe that we're being given an opportunity to shape our destiny. And so we need to um, take hold of our earth and also embrace our women and hear them out and work together to develop a new strategy that addresses the issues of justice and development, uh, like the ones I mentioned um, earlier. Lo interesante, lo interesante, que este movimiento no solamente tiene que ver con, la, no tiene que ver con, con, con las Américas, sino en el mundo entero. Hay un despertar eh, eh, feminista con el mejor sentido de la palabra que hace que nosotros podamos ver la esperanza de que un día, no muy lejos, nuestros derechos se nos se nos den. Kening is not just happening in the Americas. Globally, we're seeing a, a growth of feminism in the good sense of the word. And this really gives us hope that we could advance towards our rights. Por tanto, simplemente es honrar, seguir honrando a nuestras mujeres, que es honrar la, a, a, nuestra, a la naturaleza y abrazarnos a ustedes con el mejor sentido de la palabra para un mundo mejor. So the best thing we can do is honor our women right now, just like we honor nature and embrace them together to build a new future. Entonces, pienso okay, que esa es mi, mi, mi respuesta. So I think that's my response. Yeah, right now we're going to have to pause for the calls. We come back, we come back with our panelists, Brother Moses. For our listening audience, we are discussing tonight from Colombia to Brazil to Cuba to Haiti. We are discussing Africans and business people in the geopolitical areas that we call Central, South, and the Caribbean. We're talking about this whole question of Africans. How can we unite as a people? Panelists and my guests, one of the things I want you to think about when we come back from our break for the Afro descendants in these regions that we're discussing. How do they view this concept of pan-Africanism? Where does that fit in? 
But right now, we're going to pause for this cause. We'll be right back. You're going to listen to Africa on the Move as your host of Africa. We're going to bring it to you. We're going to define it, and we're going to stand behind it. We'll be right back. Revolution, 
and I I'm, I say that because uh, you know we we have uh, a problem, but we have to uh, understand what the solution is, and so um, I, I I would hope that uh, our people are in, on board for scientific socialism as a solution to this problem, and uh, and uh, I would ask I would ask uh, are you aware of of this, the difference between reform and uh, socialist reform and revolution itself. That's the question. Thank you. That's uh, Sister Crystal. Your response is Sister Crystal. I think that's a great question. Personally, <clears throat> I think there's always more for me to learn <clears throat> to that question, yeah. to that end. <laughs> and the question has made me recognize and think about all of the um, different readings that um, contribute to what we're seeing today and to um, what people are facing in the different countries that we mentioned and the root causes of the different issues as well. Um, I would like to say that I I definitely think that um, recognizing the difference between revolution and reform and what that means in terms of rethinking the structures of society, rethinking of how we create and imagine ourselves in society is important and so I very much appreciate that that question was asked. Uh, Sanchez? Um, I think that, um, well, thinking mostly about the question before when on the break and then adding this one to it, part of the problem has been in a lot of these communities is that they've been uh, completely cut off in, in, in many respects from any sort of technology, any sort of roads, any sort of um, even cell service. And so um, their knowledge of many of um, Pan-African movements or other movements outside of even their own community is very limited. And so you do see some uh, people who are able to um, study or are able to interact that will take on uh, some ideas that they consider to be pan-Africanist or ideas that they even consider to be revolutionary or socialist or communist. But in reality, um, most of those are an interpretation of what that might be and very far from perhaps what the theory and the actual frameworks are. And so I think um, part of the, the difficulty in answering that question is that um, I don't think that in at least the case of um, Colombia, there's been enough of an advancement of knowledge as to what all of these things are um, in those communities to really have an opinion. So you've seen a lot of um, autonomous uh, self-education mechanisms um, set up where it's basically from the perspective of that community and, and their history and their view of seeing things. And if you were to maybe... Uh, you know, break that down, you see that a lot of it includes collectivism. A lot of it is actually very socialistic. Um, a lot of it is non-materialistic, and it's very equitable at all different levels and very democratic. Um, but um, I'm not sure that they would call it or see it that way. Um, it, it really it, it sort of develops on its own. And so I think that there's a need for far more education and a far more interaction um, amongst these different movements. Okay. Can you have a brother briefly speak to those, that issue, Sister 
Funchi, ellos quieren saber cómo se eh, ve en estas comunidades el tema de panafricanismo y después el señor también preguntó si se saben las diferencias entre el socialismo científico y revolución en estas comunidades. Es que eh, siguiendo eh, la línea en que en que usted Jimena eh, habló sobre sobre Colombia, en el caso de Cuba, claro que sabemos que desde pequeño te enseñan eh, marxismo, leninismo, o sea, eh, pero ¿qué es comunismo? ¿Qué es socialismo? Las comunidades, eh, no olvidemos que Marx y esos líderes eh, marxistas toman ese concepto de lo que es la vivencia tradicional. Por tanto, se lo llevan a un concepto donde al ser eh, eliminado o, o, o aplastado eh, por los colonialistas o, o los invasores eh, tratan de, de desaparecer la esencia de entre comillas el comunismo que ese comunismo no es más que la vida eh, que siempre nosotros los tradicionalistas tuvimos el respeto mutuo a la gente, el trabajo de colectivismo, el respeto a la tierra, a que si yo tengo un pedazo de pan, ese pedazo de pan come el otro y come el otro, y todo eso eh, siempre siempre existió. Lo único que el mundo occidental lo lleva a la escritura, a los libros, pero hay muchas culturas indígenas que todavía mantienen ese concepto. Eh, yo por muchos años me consideré eh, panafricano hasta un día que mi difunto abuelo que no era panafricano pero sí africano pero que amaba la tierra me esclareció cierto cierto eh, por mediación de la tradición oral cierto concepto, entonces me hizo entender y teniendo vínculo con, con otras culturas indígenas que yo no soy panafricanista yo soy panindigenista pero tenemos que entender que todo lo que termina en ista va a extremo por tanto estas culturas o, o estos movimientos si sí mantienen o han logrado de mantener, eh, o están tratando de retomar lo que en un pasado fue vital y que en la actualidad, producto a ese erocentrismo, que caemos, estamos hablando de economía, fue eh, invadido por nuestros invasores. Quiere decir que, por ejemplo, lo que, lo que acontece en Colombia y en otros lugares de América Latina y del mundo entero, Viene el invasor, arrasa, nos quita nuestra tierra y a partir de ahí 
eh, nos quiere imponer conceptos que en nuestra mente, hablando en sentido figurado, no existen. ¿Por qué? Porque toda una vida vivimos en armonía. Toda una vida nosotros vivimos en armonía. Entonces, pienso que llevar, eh, eh, a analizar el concepto de, eh, de marxismo o, o comunismo científico, eso eh, es más para los catedráticos que para la gente de base. La gente de base lo que le interesa es la armonía, el respeto a la naturaleza. Y cuando usted analiza el concepto de comunismo, que es la última fase del socialismo, estamos hablando de, de respeto. Ok, déjame ¿Y ese respeto? Sí, sí, ok, gracias. Ok, so in Cuba you learn about uh, Marxism and Leninism um, and communism at a very early age. But the question is, what is communism really? What is socialism really? Marx and the Marxists um, took a concept that was basically um, indigenous to us and a traditional way of life and basically turned it into a concept. Um, a lot of that traditional way of life was destroyed uh, by colonialism. Um, so when you look at um, our, uh, our peoples, our lives um, have been traditionally traditionalist. And when we look at that, we actually see that it's like communism. We respect each other. We do collective work. We, during the world, came and imposed themselves, took the idea, and decided to write it up as a concept. I always thought of myself as a Pan-Africanist until one day my grandfather, who was African, um, made me understand this. And I basically changed the way I categorized myself to make myself a pan-indigenous person. Um, but again, if you put ism or it's, all of those are sort of extremes. Um, what um, these movements are really about is trying to maintain or retake what was vital in the past that was taken away by the invaders or others who tried to impose another idea. Um, if we look at Colombia and Latin America and other countries, uh, we see that these invaders, they, they came to our lands, take over our lands, they imposed these concepts. Um, and I think these concepts of whether um, it's reform or whether it's scientific Um, socialism or what have you are really more um, concepts for those who are studying this, um, who are trying to make a curriculum. Um, but in terms of the grassroots level, what people really understand is that they are trying to go back to a harmony and a respect for each other in the way that they live. Entonces, okay. Es, es, yeah, okay, thank you. Esa es mi respuesta. That's his response. What we're going to do right now, we're going to have to um, bring it to a closing. We're going to ask our panelists if they would just weigh in on any kind of final thoughts um, to our guests. Um, so we'll come with you, Brother Haki, some thoughts and reflections on tonight's program. 
was a very was a very enlightening program. Um, I really appreciate the guest. Um, you know, when it, there's a great deal of confusion when it comes to the the uh, perils that impact the African people. There's those the belief that these problems that we talk about are peculiar to America. So it's good to see people from different parts of the world to expound on the reality that this this, this oppression of oppression, specifically African oppression, is global. And so as, as such, we need a global response in terms of the oppression that our people face. So I'll simply conclude with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony and Brother Haki again, can you just say a brief list about your organization? Um, and um, how can you get in touch with you with, with the organization? I think you're missing out, brother, brother Haki, but he's with the African Women Association. We encourage uh, this audience to find out more about the organization. You can go to our website at www.aaa-cubatools.com. Next, we go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final reflection on today's program. And also, let's talk to us a little bit about your organization. How can people find out more about it? Certainly. Um, I, I want to thank uh, the guests that appeared on the program tonight. I learned a great deal about the struggles of Africans and uh, in other parts of the diaspora. And I do appreciate their contributions uh, to, uh, you know, to my knowledge. And I think that we need to uh, to do this more often. Uh, talk to uh, to people in different parts of the diaspora as well as on the continent, in order to bring about the conditions to see that our problems are not that unique. As Haki correctly pointed out, our problems are uh, the problem of oppression and exploitation is global. And it's going to take a global solution, but it can only come about if we or we are organized, and that starts with the political education of the masses of our people. To learn more about the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thanks. Thank you, Brother Ashton. Brother Moses. Your final reflection and thoughts on today's program. Yes, I appreciate the guests. Uh, it's been very enlightening, and I hope they will keep up the good works. Uh, we have a, a vast um, amount of work to do in terms of education, and uh, and uh, we have to be about that task. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our guests tonight, Sister Crystal, Brother Sushi, and we have a Sister Chances. Before I let y'all give y'all final thoughts and everything, I would be remiss if I don't ask y'all one major question about the difficulties that our people and indigenous people are facing in the very regions that we talk about tonight. We know that the major player that is causing this terrorism and this chaos is the U.S. imperialist system. We also know there are institutions such as the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, you have the World Banks, you have uh, this whole military industrial complex uh, system are uh, all features of this oppression. 
what role of chaos are they causing in this region? Can you just talk a little bit about it? Because everybody talk about the crime, but tell them who are the criminals. Just a general response for each one of y'all to that subject area. Well, I think your question brings attention to an issue that I would like to bring attention to. I think um, a lot of state actors are perpetuating a lot of the oppression that we see um, against even against their own people, as we know. So if we look at the Dominican Republic, for example, um, there is currently an issue of um, nation nationlessness that is affecting a lot of um, at least 200,000 um, Dominican citizens of um, Haitian descent. Well, now since 2000, since the 2013 ruling, they're no longer considered citizens due to um, the Dominican court, and I think that it is um, exemplary of um, how citizens can be can, um, or can be marginalized by their own governments, and I think also the lack of international awareness of this issue, although it has tremendous effects on various countries, is a testament to how little attention there is on the plight of peoples of African descent. Um, and so I think that international bodies, state actors need to pay attention to what's going on. We need to listen and we need to talk to each other about the different issues. And, and the international decade of African descent and the program of action that comes with it is one real concrete way that we can actually um, do that and redress some of the issues that are going on. Okay. So the same chance in response to the question? Also, before you leave, talk sure. a little bit about well, the two... organization and how people get in contact with you. Sure. Well, I think um, to get in contact with me, the best thing to do is to email me at G-S-A-N-C-H-E-Z, G-Sanchez at WOLA.org. We're happy to add you to our urgent actions list and to send uh, more information about all of these different um, struggles and put people in touch with our partners on the ground in those countries. The two most pressing issues I see right now, one, it's not a new one, but it's about to get worse, is the issue of the anti-narcotic efforts of the United States, especially in Colombia. Uh, people know about the uh, racialization of the effects of the drug trade in the U.S., but they really don't know about it in Colombia. And in Colombia, it is literally um, an, a, a militarized attack approach whereby um, for many years herbicide was uh, basically poured on Afro-descendant indigenous communities uh, by U.S. contractors that would burn not only the coca, um, which often is coca that's being forced to be grown in those areas by illegal or groups at some point, but also uh, killed all of the food supply of those people as well as um, they're uh, polluting their waters and contaminating um, their environment. And so there's a real threat right now. Um, the fumigation effort against um, the drug had been put on hold because of the peace process. And now there's a real push on the part of the Trump administration, along with a new right-wing administration in Colombia, to restart that program. Most of the coca we're talking about is concentrated in Afro-descendant lands in biodiverse areas. 
where if those areas were destroyed, it would take hundreds of years for it to be regrown, in addition to the damage that it would do to all of the people there. The second issue is that in January, we will have a new president in Brazil, uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, who has made his points very clear um, about uh, black people, basically comparing them to cattle and saying that they shouldn't reproduce. Um, in addition to that, he plans to reinstate uh, some very hardline uh, public security measures. In uh, Brazil, you have a huge problem of extrajudicial killings committed by the police in the poorer areas of Brazil, which are mostly Afro-descendant areas in the urban areas. And he really is promoting a policy of shoot first and ask questions later and of arming people. Um, and I think that this is going to increase the already really high rate of numbers of Brazilians of African descent that are killed. I believe it's one every 23 minutes. Um, and so that's a situation that needs a lot of international solidarity and Afro-Brazilian groups who recently in Washington are asking for any sort of assistance uh, to try to uh, do as much as possible to mitigate um, that impending situation. Can we ask you just in general for people that can keep up on what's going on in the Central and South America and the Caribbean? What sources of information may be available when the public can go to to find out more information on what's going on with the various movements? Well, part of the problem is that there isn't any systematized information. Um, and part of it is very little that is in English. <laughs> um, but um, mm -hmm. you can definitely follow me on Twitter. I try to uh, put out anything that's um, English about all of these issues. Um, and so um, basically uh, following me on Twitter at Jimena Sanchez at WOA, um, you, will, you will get that information. But there really isn't a systematized um, system. That's something that needs to happen. Thank you. And then we have a response for our brother, Fancy. It happened to again oh, introduce himself, talk about his organization, but also deal with um, some of the major players who are creating this chaos in the regions as they pay our people. Si puedes, Fancy, hablar un poco sobre tu organización, pero también hablar cuáles son los actores que están creando. Eh, deteriorando de o actuando y, y creando este caos en esta región. Bueno, eh, mi organización eh, enfoca en el rescate y mantenimiento de la, de la tradición, eh, lograr de mantener la tradición oral desde el punto de vista eh, espiritual conectado a la naturaleza donde so respeto focuses on recapturing and maintaining our ancestral traditional uh, spiritual practices which are linked to the earth pero eh, afortunadamente eh, durante muchos años eh, colaboro con grupos de derechos humanos a nivel en a nivel global y eh, también eh, con 
Jimena. Por tanto, eh, todo lo que tenga que ver con el derecho a la tierra, al individuo, pues ahí como un buen guía espiritual. So, um, for many years, um, we have collaborated with many different human rights organizations, both um, in the U.S. and globally, and um, we also collaborate with um, Jimena, especially on the issues of the right to land and the rights of individuals, and we will be continuing to do that as guiding uh, spiritualists. Ahora, este gran caos, y vamos al principio, tiene que ver con desde el punto de vista de IFA, ya como, como eh, Babalao, tiene que ver con Ofun, el orden de IFA Ofun, que habla sobre la desesperación y donde se mezcla lo, lo positivo con lo negativo, o sea, lo malo y lo bueno se mezcla. Big chaos that is taking place now from the IFA perspective as a Babalao priest has to do with the Odun of Ofun, where you mix the negative and the positive together. Eso no quiere decir que no tenemos esperanza. La esperanza está en el Odun Difa Eyiobbe, que habla sobre todo un principio tiene un fin. So this doesn't mean that we don't have hope or we can't turn this around. We also see in this order de Yobe, which looks at uh, finalizing towards the future. Y donde no existe noche sin día. And there, there is no night without day. Quiere decir que si nosotros somos capaces de organizarnos bien, porque en el Yobe nace la organización, si somos capaces de organizarnos bien, entonces podemos hacer como hace la noche que le entrega al día, eh, o sea, cuando, eh, cuando la noche negocia con el día. Quiere decir que en ese proceso de tribulación, cuando está amaneciendo, la noche le entrega al día para que el día pueda ser día. So, meaning that um, we can do like the night, um, in the process of where night negotiates with day during that tribulation, so that night can become day. Visto, visto esto de manera práctica en la gente, en los movimientos, necesitamos que nos den que aquí en los Estados Unidos, el país más poderoso del mundo, nos den más espacio o que los no solamente los afro eh, los afroamericanos sino todas aquellas organizaciones que tengan que ver con eh, derechos humanos nos den la oportunidad de alzar nuestra voz que eso no sucede so how do you um, translate what I just mentioned in terms of practical terms when we talk about afro Latinos, it's really important that in the U.S., the most important country in the world, that they give Afro-Latinos more space 
And I'm not just talking about the African-American organizations. I'm also talking about human rights organizations and others so that we can directly um, lift our voice. Que no hay hecho aislado, que lo mismo que sucede en Congo con el Cotán es exactamente lo que está ocurriendo en Colombia, en Chocó, en las minas de Chocó que son las mismas transnacionales, y estamos hablando ya de un tema global. So, there we can see that in Congo, what's happening with the coal sands is exactly the same as what's happening with the gold mines in Chocó, Colombia, and it's there we're not even talking about the same issue. We're even talking about the same transnational extractive companies. Que lo mismo que está sucediendo aquí en los Estados Unidos, con nuestros hermanos indígenas en California, en, en el norte de Minnesota, o sea, en todos esos lugares, es exactamente lo mismo que está sucediendo en muchos lugares de América con el desplazamiento de nuestra gente, tanto afrodescendiente como indígena. Y son ejemplos globales, reales. So what is happening in the U.S. for Native Americans in northern Minnesota and California is exactly the same type of thing that is happening in all parts of the Americas, except for in the Americas with indigenous and Afro-descendants that are being displaced. Que les enseñen a nuestros hijos en la escuela la verdadera historia y que no se manipule o se siga manipulando como se, como se está haciendo. Que te pones a leer un libro de historia y nos ponen como verdugo. Eso, tenemos que seguir luchando en contra de eso. So, it's important that our children um, learn the real story, um, that they stop manipulating um, what is taught by solely telling one one version of the story and ours sort of a secondary. We need to work on que that. Nuestro, que nuestros representantes en Naciones Unidas o en la OEA, que es blanqueada, que todas esas organizaciones que son blanqueadas, que nos den la oportunidad a nosotros como sociedad civil y como la esperanza de la conservación del medio ambiente que somos nosotros los tradicionales que nos den la oportunidad de expresarnos y de alzar la voz eso es un tema global so in all of these institutions like the United Nations the Organization of American States which are all whitened in the sense he means that basically it's mostly white um, that they allow for spaces for the civil society who is the traditionalist civil society focused on um, conserving the environment, express our opinions. Donde el afroamericano, que en su mayoría está dormido, despierte y levante su voz y que entienda que los problemas que suceden aquí con el afroamericano sucede, sucede en España, sucede en Francia, sucede en Latinoamérica, en Brasil, donde quiera, que no es un hecho aislado. Y por tanto, so es un hecho global. Afro 
African Americans, of whom many are asleep, um, wake up and realize that the situation of African Americans and what they're facing is the same situation in France or in Spain or in Brazil or in Colombia. It's really a global problem. Y que en medio o el sector de comunicación tome ejemplo de este programa que nos ha invitado para poder entonces levantar la voz como la, lo, lo, los grandes periódicos, las grandes emisoras que no hablan absolutamente nada, nada, nada sobre el diseño afrodescendiente y nuestros derechos. It's important that the media monopoly is broken and that shows like this one are replicated with the bigger media because they're none of this and much less so our rights and the decade of the Afro-descendants. Y para terminar, le remito a enfocar o analizar cuando menciono sobre la hormiga, pequeña pero conoce el secreto de la tierra. Es tan fuerte y tan poderosa simplemente porque trabajan unidas y es lo que nos falta a nosotros por el egoísmo, el egocentrismo y el eurocentrismo que no han perpetrado desde pequeño. And in closing, I just want to recall the analogy I mentioned before, which is of the ant who works close to the ground is able to achieve a lot because it works in unity with others because that's what we need to do. We need to break away from egoism, egocentrism, eurocentrism to be able to turn things around. Thank you so much y bendiciones para ustedes y el mundo y para nuestros ancestros que nos dan la fuerza de seguir adelante. Thank you very much and I give blessings to all of you and thanks to our ancestors who are there who allow us to move forward. And on your note, on behalf of Africa on the Moon, we would like to thank our panelists, our guests, our listening audience, and all those who participate in various forms of participation. We'd like to remind you that Africa on the Moon is a weekly radio show that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. This is a program dedicated to the Pan-African Movement for the so-called underserved communities that we come to speak truth to power. We understand that the only solution to our people daily problems is the issue of Pan-Africanism. So we come and ask our people to take some time out to find more about Pan-Africanism and we know that one of the problems that oppressed people Peoples are lacking is a problem of organization. We must get organized and so encourage our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Get organized. Organization is the solution to our people problem. With organization, you will get unity. Until next time, please join us next Sunday. Share this program with your friends and your network. And let's continue to fight the power that be. We can end this program with a song by dedicated to Mama Africa, then we will follow Obama Nation, and then we share some of the practical history of African people experiences throughout the world, but maybe some in the U.S.
by Brother Kwame Ture. It's called Lessons for the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Please listen to it, share it, and we'll see you next Sunday. Again, let's always strive to go forward, Apple, backwards level. You've been listening to Africa on the Move. You've been listening to Brother's Voice of Brother Africa. And today's theme was from Colombia to Brazil to Haiti to Cuba. Africans, indigenous people struggle. Until next time, let's always strive to go forward, Apple, backwards level. This was... That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yes. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy, Mosaddegh, Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure.
Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s. Instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. 
It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who once having made gains are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. 
But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Thus, thus students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and in a mobilized area there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality.
Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when, we look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the Populist Party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interest of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interest as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that 
their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hand in hand with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. 
Consequently, the objective conditions, we say, are higher. But these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on a college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, yes of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Conscious he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate it, the use of violence.